What if we told you that everything you've been led to believe about aging is wrong? That the rest of your life can be completely different than you think. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on this program, your beliefs, your expectations, and your mindset are about to be challenged by one of the most provocative voices out there when it comes to getting a grip on what this life stage is really all about. Yeah, Bill, I, I love this guy because the next hour is all about leaning into life. It's about enjoying the ride and extracting as much joy and significance as we can until the very end. Of course, the problem that we all face is that we live in an overtly ageist culture and we become afraid of growing older, so we withdraw. We isolate. Uh, we pretty much live in a cocoon of surplus safety. So what can we do about it? Well, we're going to find out from one of the world's leading experts on human performance. Now, this is a guy who has written over a dozen best-selling books with titles like The Art of the Impossible and The Future is Faster Than You Think. His latest is called Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad, and his works have netted him two Pulitzer Prize nominations. So are we conditioned to withdraw from taking Taking risk? Are we approaching our later years with the wrong mindset? Let's find out because today it's all about hope, inspiration, and possibility. It's all about growing bolder. Well, we all want to live our best lives possible, so how do we do it? Well, we're about to find out, not from someone who came up with a diet or an exercise plan, but from someone whose research, whose ideas and philosophy has attracted attention from all over the world. His name is Stephen Kotler, and he's one of the world's leading experts on human performance. In a nutshell, he believes the key to maximizing our lives is built upon a foundation of flow. So let's start there by finding out what flow is and how it's connected to peak performance. Flow is technically defined, scientifically defined, as an optimal state of consciousness. State of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. You get so focused on the task at hand, so focused on what you're doing, everything else just starts to melt away and disappear. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, that voice in your head diminish, get really quiet, time distorts, right? Usually what happens is we just get so sucked into what we're doing that five hours go by and what feels like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical go through the roof. So that's, that's flow. And it, it's, uh, it sits at the heart of the discussion of peak performance because it is literally how humans have been optimized by evolution to perform at our best. So whenever you see peak human performance, chances are you're seeing a human being in flow. And the good news is flow is available to all of us, right? It come, it's a built-in feature of being human. In fact, uh, most mammals can actually get into flow. It's not just humans. So, so we all have the capacity, but, but is it true that some access it easier and quicker than others. And, and as I understand it, that's part of what you do, help people learn how to access flow. There is something called flow proneness, how likely you are sort of naturally to fall into this state. And that comes a little bit down to genetics and a little bit down to nature and nurture. But uh, to your point, flow is incredibly trainable. So flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And knowing what those triggers are and how to use them can really make the state sort of reliable and repeatable. And we see this flow research collective 
uh, we're a research and training organization, right? On the research side, we study the neurobiology of peak human performance, so what's going on in the brain and the body, performing our best. We do this work with neuroscientists at Stanford and USC and UCLA and a dozen other research institutions. And then we take what we learn and we use it to train people. And we train everybody from individuals all the way up to companies. We work in 130 countries. And, you know, it's everybody, as I said, from like, professional athletes through like soccer moms, soccer dads, companies like Facebook, the uh, Air Force, Bain Capital, Accenture. And my point is wildly diverse global group of people. And what we see in eight weeks of training, working with this, these tools, these triggers, is you can get a 70 to 80% increase in flow in your life. Hmm. So very, very, very trainable is my point. What are the challenges, I think, of interviewing you? I mean, it, it's a great opportunity. And thank you for it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's so many different things to talk about with you, and, and yet you can talk about any of them. So uh, you'll forgive me if we bounce around because I tend to do that. Uh, I think that part of peak performance aging, which you write about in your book, is contrary to the ageist narrative that we have all been spoon-fed from the time we were toddlers. I mean, I think since we took our first breath, uh, we begin to have a negative connotation of growing older. It makes it hard for most of us to believe that we can do more than our culture has led us to believe we can do. You had to actually prove that for yourself. And I mean, Stephen, there's a lot of authors out there that will translate what research has proven. Uh, They'll put it in a book, but you son of a gun got out there and you needed to prove it to yourself that more uh, is possible. So tell us what you have done with park skiing. Let's start where you started for a sense with the traditional narrative, right? The traditional narrative, I like to call the traditional narrative, the long, slow rot theory. Right. It's the <laughs> idea that all of our mental skills and our physical skills, they decline over time and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And what's funny about the long, slow route theory, and we can go here later. I'm not going to dwell here, but it actually really gets going in like 1907. Freud writes something in his book on psychotherapy, and that's sort of the real beginning of it. And from roughly 1907 through 1995 or so. All science did was prove Freud right in exacting detail. This is all the stuff that's going to decline, going to decline, going to decline. And then starting in the 90s, and this is the second half of the story that people don't talk about, major holes started showing up in all of that research. And it wasn't that the skills and abilities don't decline over time. It's that none of it is irreversible. They're all use it or lose it skills. So everything we used to believe declines over time, we now know to use it or lose it skill. And if we never stop using these skills, we can advance them, hold on to them for far later into life than anybody thought possible. That's part one of the story, right? Part of that story is this, again, this idea goes back to Freud. Freud actually said the, the idea that an old dog can't learn new tricks goes back to this comment by Freud, but by, you know, the end of the last century, it was dogma, right? We all, everybody sort of believed it. And yet there were these holes in the theory. And some of them were, were in the middle of flow science, which is how I sort of, one of the ways I stumbled into this field. And I started to realize that if what I was reading in flow science was true, some new learning theory, some stuff in network neuroscience, a bunch of other whiz bang fields was true. Old dogs should be able to learn tricks, new tricks. In fact, they should be better at learning certain kinds of tricks than younger dogs. And to test this, as you pointed out, I just, and this was stuff that had been proven mostly in the laboratory. You know, there were pioneers like Ellen Langer at Harvard who took some of the mindset work and some of that stuff out of the laboratory into the wild. But as a general rule, this was stuff that had been done in the lab. But I said, you know, if this stuff is true, older adults should be able to onboard new skills, including really difficult 
physical skills that that nobody thinks older adults have any any chance with. And so as a way to prove it or test it, really, um, I decided to see if I could teach myself how to park ski, as you mentioned, uh, at age 53 is when I started. Now, park skiing, uh, if you've seen the Olympics, it's the discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps on boxes and rails and wall rides and such. And it's very acrobatic and it's somewhat dangerous. And for about 11 to 16 biological reasons, depending on how you're counting them. It's basically considered if you're over the age of 35, it's very difficult to learn. If you're over the age of 45, it's pretty much impossible. Once you get over 50, they just think you're crazy. And <laughs> uh, so this is what I set out to do. And uh, I, to, to measure progress, I made a list of, I think it was 20 tricks. And this was zero. I had no experience going in, didn't know any tricks to intermediate roughly. Um, and, I figured it would take four years, five years, whatever, but, you know, we were going to test it out. We had this new learning theory. Let's see what happens. It took a season to, to do that. And that was astounding. It was amazing. In fact, I'd never made that much progress at anything in my life, mm. let alone a difficult new physical skill in my fifties. It was really, it was astounding. And that, you know, is one of the stories told in the book. Simultaneously, I had a ski partner who was with me the entire time. He was actually uh, unlike me, who had no parking experience, he was a former sponsored athlete who had retired, had a family, career, and came back. He's younger than me, but came back to park skiing after a very long time off. He applied the exact same protocol, and he got farther than than he had ever thought was possible. And I've been skiing with this guy for five or six years, and I was looking at his progress going, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. Wow, if my stuff looks the same, this is really amazing. So the following year, we came back with the exact same learning protocol. We took 17 older adults, ages 30 to 68, and uh, the same protocol. And in four days on the mountain, taught them also how to how to park ski and how to park snowboard. So that was when we started to realize we were on to something. And that's essentially the story told in the book, why it works, how it works, what we did. We're talking with Stephen Kotler, who is the the author of a new book called Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. And I love that you say that because Growing Boulder is the official media partner of the National Senior Games. I've been trying to convince them to, to, to put in some of these more extreme sports. But I became interested in a lot of this when I read a study that was done, I think, in 2006, where they determined that the biological age of the average participant was 18 years younger than their chronological age. And and then you look into it and you start reading, you know, Ellen Langer, the chambermaid study and the counterclockwise study. And you realize that all of these studies that, that informed our belief system were basically done with large populations of sedentary adults. So God bless you, Stephen Kotler, for doing what you're doing. And I have to tell you, your book had me at the title because one of my friends is the world's oldest professional skateboarder and his nickname is NAR <laughs> because he is one gnarly dude. And you say that action sports are actually fantastic for longevity. And to quote you, and I'm sure NPR is going to have to bleep this, you say, quote, you're too old not to do this. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. So let's just start on the physical side, and then we'll go to the full picture. I said before, all of our skills are user to lose it skills. And if we get keep training them, we get to hang on to them far later in life. As I'm sure you know, on the physical side of the equation, there's really five skills that you want to be training over time. Strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. And if you go by what the World Health Organization says, 
it's a lot of training. It's a hundred for peak performance aging. You want 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity. You want two strength training days a week and three balance agility and flexibility days, or you find a single activity that covers mm. all those bases at once. Now mm. that's the, ter- the term that describes a single activity, that kind of motion is dynamic. So I'm going to come back to this term in a, in a moment, but when we talk about things that are dynamic, right, it's because we're combining strength and stamina coordination, and all that stuff at once. So this has an enormous impact physically because it allows, it gives us a sort of one multi-tool that hits all the things we need to train physically as a bonus When we engage in dynamic motion, when the brain has to coordinate strength, stamina, balance, all those things at once, it actually spurs two big words ahead, danger, angiogenesis and neurogenesis. So if you want to preserve cognitive function, memory, stave off Alzheimer's dementia, you uh, need to birth new neurons and you need those neurons to form new neural nets, what's known as synaptic plasticity. And you need new blood vessels to support those neurons so they get oxygen and, 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 right, and can get energy. The angiogenesis, the birth of new blood vessels, neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons. So action sports hit all of the physical things that we, we need to hit at once. And they protect cognitive reserve and protect us against cognitive decline. So that's the, uh, that's the small picture, right? Very, very crucial. But if you want to extend it out, one bit. If you want to summarize peak performance aging in a single sentence, it's this. We can rock till we drop if we regularly engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, there's that word again, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. And we can talk about why all those components and what that means, but essentially action sports hits almost every one of those possibilities. If you do them right with the right approach, it's all of them. So what does this look like in real life? Well, what are the three longest lived counties in America? If you, besides Loma Linda, California, the known blue zone, where by the way, there's, there's a lot of outdoor activity also, but the three other longest lived communities are Pitkin, Eagle and Summit County. They're all in Colorado. That's Vail, Beaver Creek, Aspen, Copper mm-hmm. Mountain, A Basin, these meccas for outdoor activity. And so I've just sort of given you a high level overview of why that is. But just to put it in context, Summit County, Colorado, they outlive the rest of America by an average of 10 years. Wow. No, that's a great explanation. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I loved uh, in your book, and I have to tell you, I, I started jumping rope this, this year because, uh, you know, I, I like the activity. And I read in your book about stacking practices. As soon as I heard you talk about stacking practices, I went out and bought a weight vest. Yes, you did. I've got a jump rope here in the office and I put a weight vest on. So tell, tell us a little bit about why you believe in stacking practices and how that works. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I said, at the Flow Research Collective, we're a training organization and we train people all over the globe. But there's one thing I think they all have in common. Everybody we train is super busy. I think we're all super busy these days. I'm super busy these days. And so we are always looking for what we call multi-tool solutions, a single tool that solves multiple problems at once. So let me give you an example that we, we often give a flow-based example. So mindfulness meditation is a remarkably good multi-tool. It trains up focus, 
which helps us our enhances our ability to get into flow and it lowers stress levels, which actually blocks our ability to get into flow. Now you have to train up focus to get into flow and you have to lower stress levels. You can do them independently or you can do a single activity that does them together. We would prefer a single activity that does them together. So when it comes to dynamic movement and all the stuff you have to train, when I entered my NAR Country Adventure, I didn't have a whole lot. I was already physically active. I didn't have a ton of time for more training, but I knew I was going to have to get a lot stronger. There was a lot of stuff I was going to have to do. So I I have dogs and I walk my dogs every day in the mountains uh, where I live. And I decided I would add in a weight vest to these hikes as a way to train. Why weight vests are phenomenal multi-tool solutions. So they train strength, obviously. They train stamina, obviously. Um, they train agility and balance because they're on your upper torso. So every time you take a step, you have to rebalance and catch yourself. So balance, agility, core strength. Um, if you stretch before you go on a, on a weight face hike before and after, you're getting flexibility. So it was a single tool that allowed me to train a lot of stuff at once. And I would do things like hike up the hill slowly and come down quickly, which trains fast twitch muscle response and, and that sort of stuff. So I, I really got a lot of mileage out of a single tool. And, uh, and, and I found, uh, it, it was really useful. And I, with peak performance aging, I think you need to think this way because there's a lot to do. And, you know, the only difference between peak performance and peak performance aging, let me put some definitions around how I think about these things. When I say peak performance, I don't mean anything fancier than just getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And we were talking about peak performance aging. It's the same thing, getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when applied to kind of the challenges and opportunities of aging. And there's just a lot to do. I gave you that, that list a moment ago of, you know, all the stuff that you want to regularly do for peak performance aging. It's a lot to do. So I want these multi-tool solutions. I want one way to tick seven boxes at the same time. So, so as you're, you're, you're doing all of this, I, I know you have to be plugged into the almost frenetic research that's going on right now to cure aging, to extend lifespan. And, and, you know, it's uh, the billionaires one after another that are, you know, that are spending all of the, uh, I always kind of default to the idea. This is going to be great. It's going to be kind of like we got Tang out of the, the, the moon mission back in the sixties where, you know, it's going to trickle down and benefit, but, but it's not going to change any of our lives in the foreseeable future. We've got to take responsibility for ourselves. We got to get out there and get going and make it happen ourselves. We are all our own primary care providers. So how important is, is mindset? Because I think a lot of people are sitting around waiting for, for the pill, waiting for the genetic therapy, waiting for something mm. to, to change their life. Let me speak to the whole thing. Cause you have to, like, I, Peter Diamandis is my, is, is my writing partner. He, he's one of the, he's a, he's a heavyweight in the longevity science and regenerative medicine space. And I agree with a lot of what you said. I want to flesh out, push back about a couple of items because I, I think there's a little more to the story that's cool. And then I want to talk about mindset for you. So the, the main point that you made is the one I love making, which is everybody, if you, you know, you enter the longevity conversation these days everybody's going to hit you with the same thing, right? There are these nine known causes of aging and there are now biological causes of aging. There are dozens of biotech companies and, you know, that, that are aimed at all of them. And, you know, this is, this is the future of anti-aging and it's, and it's a disease. Now that's regenerative medicine and longevity science. These are not new fields. 
I've been studying these fields, working in these fields, writing about these fields, reporting on these fields and experimenting on myself for over 30 years, right? In, in, since the late 1990s. Um, what I will tell you is historically, regenerative medicine and longevity science bats 15%, meaning there was a lot of ideas back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, uh, and 10% of them are now right and 90% of them are nonsense. So that's been the historic batting average. So what everybody is focusing on right now is the cutting edge of a lot of hype that historically has about a 15% batting average. So worth pausing on that for a second. But the other thing I want to say is there's this narrative that these billionaires are doing things that, you know, the rest of us aren't going to get to do. And that's not entirely true for a bunch of different reasons. So first, I want to point out that regenerative medicine was at the heart of this. And when it started out 10 years ago, that was platelet-enriched plasma, PRP, which now most major insurance providers cover. And if you tear your rotator cuff, that's like you're, you got it covered. If you, even if you have like mediocre insurance and that's available to sort of all of us and the trickle down benefits are already showing up and uh, regenerative medicine is cool. I always tell people at this point, like bones, ligaments, and tendons, most of the time we can fix it now. We can't regrow organs. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff we can't do, though I will say 50% of the human body is now replaceable by ionic body parts. That's kind of amazing. Again, that's not a technology for the rich. Most of that stuff was developed for soldiers coming back from combat. So the truth is really different. What is truthful, what you, what is funny is the billionaires we're talking about, the ones who are running, who have access to this medicine, they're not, they're running crazy science experiments for the benefit of mankind, as far as I can tell. They're doing radically wild things to their body to see if it'll work. And historically with longevity stuff, we don't know if it's real or not real for like 20 to 30 years. So a bunch of wealthy people are now running crazy experiments on themselves that the rest of us get to learn from. That's kind of interesting to me too. And that's a narrative <laughs> that nobody likes to talk about. Right. But historically, as I said, 15% of this stuff is right. And the rest is nonsense. So like these, there's some crazy guinea pigging going on. All right. All that said, all that said, that's all besides the point. Cause I want to go back to your core point, which is people, you know, they get really hung up on, Oh, I'm going to boost mitochondrial function and blah, blah. It's going to keep me young. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's true. I'm definitely taking supplements to boost mitochondrial function. I'm hoping I'll roll those dice. I'll run that experiment on myself, but I'm not banking on it. And what can I bank on? Most of the biggest levers that are available to us are not biological. They're not pharmacological. They're psychological, right? They're Hmm. psychological levers that produce neurobiological reactions that produce huge health and longevity possibilities. And the classic example, which is where you started is mindset, Right. Work starting with Ellen Langer back in the in the eighties and going all the way through like Becca Levy now at Yale and tons of others work that work that we've contributed to uh, on the flow side and things like that show that a positive mindset toward aging, right, a, a healthy mindset toward aging, which is you've expressed a number of times today, best days ahead of me. I'm excited about the possibilities in the second half of my life. All those things translates into an additional eight years of healthy longevity. That's enormous. That's, that's, that's a crazy amount of healthy longevity. And we understand the inverse. We understand the penalties. So this is work by Becca Levy because she was looking, she's the, she's the researcher who's sort of done the most on, on ageism and aging stereotypes. 
So those people exposed to negative stereotypes around aging in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? This is the same as having a crap mindset towards aging, um, being exposed to negative stereotypes. By the time they reach 60, will exhibit 30% greater memory decline than those who uh, were not exposed to those stereotypes. So there's a tremendous upside from positive mindset towards aging, and there's a tremendous downside having a negative mindset towards aging. And you are right. It is the big is one of the big levers that's available to all of us, right? And we don't have to wait. We, we don't have to wait 30 years for it to show up. Stephen Kotler, human performance expert. You know, he does take supplements. He isn't sure if they work, but he is sure that a positive attitude does. Really? Well, Mark's going to dive into that a little deeper next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations near you at caringtransitions.com. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and we've just heard about the effects that a positive mindset can have on aging, and just as important is the damage that we can do ourselves with a negative mindset. Human performance expert Stephen Kotler has a lot more to say on that, so let's get back to Mark. And so it would seem, Stephen, that you know one of the most important things we can do is, to the extent that we're able, is surround ourselves with, with positive people. Because I read research one time that said that negative begets negative far more quickly and to a greater extent than positive begets positive. It takes one person to tell you you can't do that and, and you're done. Yeah, that's now, yeah let, let's talk about that for a moment because you're totally right. So uh, this is uh, there's a little bit of a bigger picture, so I may need to prattle for a second about one other thing. Prattle on. All right. So one of the other cool things, and you've probably talked about this before on your show, but it, but it's worth talking about. It started, I think, I was thinking about it with, tied to the work of Gene Cohn, but uh, a lot of people contributed. Not only is the idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks false, it turns out that, as I mentioned at the start, old dogs are better at learning new certain kinds of new tricks than, than younger dogs. So you got to ask yourself, why is that? What's going on? And, and so in our late 40s, early 50s and 60s, we see a, a real change in how the brain processes information. And we see a bunch of genetic stuff, actually epigenetic stuff, genes that are only activated by experience that start coming online in our 40s and our 50s. And the result of this is, is twofold. One, the two halves of the brain start working together like never before. And normally they sort of, they function in sort of opposition in our, up to about our 50s and they start really working together in our 50s. And this peaks in our 80s, by the way. Um, and simultaneously, the brain starts to re- recruit underutilized regions. So you never learned how to play an instrument. So there's a little extra space down there. So your brain will, will use it to learn other skills and recolonize it for redundancy and a bunch of stuff. The upside of this is we gain access to three new levels of intelligence that come online in our 50s that are really sort of were locked out from before at, at a large part. Big picture thinking, relativistic thinking, and multi-perspectival thinking. So we start to be able to see things from multiple perspectives. We start to be able to see the big picture. And we start to realize that black and white thinking is a total folly of youth. And everything is sort of shades of gray and subtlety. And the downs, 
stream effect of this, these new levels of intelligence are new levels of creativity, including divergent thinking, which is the hardest aspect of creativity to train people in. That's really like far flung outside the box thinking. And we get more of it in our fifties, uh, empathy and wisdom. So intelligence, empathy, wisdom, and creativity really start coming online in our fifties. Now, one, I should just point out from a business perspective, I just listed four of the skills that business leaders will tell you are most important to thriving in the world of business in the 21st century. So that's interesting. Um, but here's the, here's the thing that's worth pointing out. Access to these skills is not automatic. You have to do certain things. Psychologists call these moderators or gateways. And there's stuff that has to happen in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then again, and afterwards, to unlock these skills, but it's afterwards that I want to focus on. This stuff happens in our 50s, and if we're lucky enough to get there, we can only hang on to it if we train down risk aversion. Because as you've been pointing out, as we age, risk aversion increases. And it does it for a bunch of different reasons. Um, some of it is actually interestingly related to thickness of white matter in the brain. White matter is the insulation that sort of got, wraps around the neurons and the axons. And when it shrinks processing speed slows down. And so you, you're sort of a little step behind. And as a result, we get more conservative. That's one of the things that happens, a bunch of other things that happen, but all of it is trainable. And so you have to start fighting risk aversion actively in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. You have to do it for a lot of reasons, but risk aversion is essentially fear. And fear is essentially the neurochemical norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is really potent in our systems, and we get too much of it in our systems. What does it do? It blocks multi-perspectival thinking, blocks big-picture thinking, uh, blocks uh, relativistic thinking. It blocks empathy. We get selfish, right, when we're we're scared. It blocks creativity because we get logical and linear when we're scared, right? We want the solution that always works. We want the, don't want the newfangled thing. Um, and it blocks wisdom. So you have to train against risk aversion at all times, A. And B, this is my bigger point. This is why I think if you're going to try to change your mindset towards aging, we are interested in what we've been calling, and you'll, you'll like this maybe, NAR-style adventures, right? <laughs> I went on one. I taught myself how to park ski. Now, everybody's going to have a different NAR-style adventure, right? Like mine was park skiing. I had unfinished business in skiing. I had a lot of motivation. There were reasons I chose that that activity. I think uh, those kinds of activities are great. Why? Because I went, it didn't matter. Like I've been involved in this field. I've been doing all this research, but we live in a world that is ageist, as you pointed out, and we have a lot of negative stereotypes around aging. And it's really hard to believe otherwise. And even though I was doing all the work, it was at the front lines of this, I was still suffering a little bit of that. So I chose an activity, park skiing, that if I was successful, like it just exploded my previous mindset towards aging and what was possible in the second half of my life. That was the point of choosing this kind of NAR style activity is I chose something that I thought was going to be impossible for myself. And as I started to triumph over it, it really leads you to the, the next question is like, okay, if this is possible. The hell else is possible. And so, you know, and that was when we redid our study with the 17 older adults, that was the major finding is that we exploded people's traditional mindset towards aging. And then I will tell you, we uh, stripped out action sports from, from, from the protocol and ran it as a training with over 300 students and measured impact. And again, the biggest impact of doing it as a training was we shifted mindset, people's mindset around aging with this NAR style quest approach. So I think there's something to be said for it or just like having to just go on and really like go head on at this mindset because it's deep in us, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. If not now, when? I mean, welcome to the age of liberation, you know, when you're beyond a certain age. And and obviously, we like to say it growing bolder. And, you know, I always say it's never too late. Let me, let me just speak. Yeah, let me speak to that, though, because two things are really interesting to me here. Because I hear you and like, you know what I mean? I've been in those rooms too. And you want to say there are caveats and maybe there are, right? Like maybe it's just being foolish uh, and naive not to say, not to say that exists. But what the research tells us is twofold. One, quality of life, meaning of life, happiness, overall life satisfaction, all those things come down to uh, predominantly the amount of flow in your life. We know this flow is baked into the positive psychology definition of happiness, the happiest people in the world, the people who score off the charts for overall life satisfaction, well-being, the people the most flow in their lives. Quality of life is very much related to flow and our desire for flow. Csikszentmihalyi proved this, the godfather of flow psychology in the last study he ever uh, ran before he died, that our, our desire for flow and our, and our ability to flow really stays present almost until death. It's like when our bodies totally fall apart at the end, our desire for Flow declines, will decline then, but up till then. So like the major thing driving quality of life, meaning life, that's not going away, right? So this, and our ability to get into flow remains, you know, over time. The second thing that is really cool, and I'm sure you've seen the same data is physically, right? Like you can, you can make an argument that you want to start training for the second half of your life as early as your twenties, both mentally and physically. But the other side of that is interventions Physical interventions done in totally sedentary populations in their 80s have huge impacts, right? If you take a totally sedentary 80-year-old and you train, teach them, not train them, teach them uh, how to walk upstairs instead of taking the elevator and how to like walk down the block to get milk at the store instead of driving, um, just those minor interventions have huge impacts in health and longevity. So, my feeling on a lot of that stuff is you don't know until you try. So yeah, there are, I mean, there are people you, you, you might want to write off, but there's a lot of data that pushes back and says, Hey, wait a minute, you can actually have a significant impact on your quality of life really, really late in life. Now, are you going to, you know, engage in a NAR style? Are you going to learn how to park ski at a, after a certain, maybe, maybe not, you know what I like? Maybe that's the, that, that's too much of a pipe dream at this point, but, um, Certainly, the rules of peak performance aging still apply, and certainly you can make it down to at, at any age. You know, in order to do almost anything that you're talking about, Stephen, you know, it takes commitment, it takes discipline. And I know that you've got a personal mantra that, 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 that you use. I get up at 4.30 and go swimming three days a week. And, and, and the secret for me is uh, I've eliminated the option not to which it just doesn't exist because at 4.30 in the morning, your mind is going to play tricks on you. And people say, how, how do you do that? But it's really easy if you really eliminate the option not to. You do something similar, don't you? I totally do. I, the, the way I explain, so I always tell people I work for the boss. The boss is the version of myself who <laughs> creates the to-do list, right? He, the boss is the guy who has my long-term best interests at heart because I am just like you and I think I'm just like everybody, like in the moment at four in the morning or whatever, right? I want the easy out. I want the quick high. I want the easy fit. You know what I mean? Like I, mm -hmm. I, I'm like everybody else. So I take choice off the table because I know neurobiologically and like ridiculous exacting detail exactly what happens in that moment if you 
don't do those things. So I always say I work for the boss. I don't create rules. I like to create missions for myself. So in our country, it was a mission, right? And then I created a set of rules that governed how I would successfully complete my mission and how I would stay safe along the way. That's the boss. The boss did all that. I just show up every day and play by the rules. That's my job. And, you know, it it, it, it has worked so far. Up next, we'll continue the conversation with Mark and Stephen Kotler by talking more about the use of supplements and what diets yield the best results. This is Growing Bolder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This is Growing Bolder, and we're in the middle of a provocative conversation about what it is that causes aging and what we can do about it. You know, Stephen Kotler is executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the leading experts on human performance. So let's get back to him and Mark. Let me double back to something you said previously, uh, because we moved on pretty quickly from everybody trying to figure out life extension and, and, and longevity. You mentioned that you do take supplements of some sort can i ask you what you take and and, and is it metformin and rapamycin or is it just no more t- I, I, no I, like so i have a general rule with stuff which is i like stuff that's been around a really long time i like stuff that has been used in a bunch of different cultures and long before uh the era of mass communication and and i tend to go for natural stuff first so I, I said earlier, there are nine known causes of aging. What do they all share in common? Stress and inflammation. So anything that fights stress and inflammation is an anti-aging tool. As you probably know, this is why meditation is a great anti-aging tool. It's why exercise is. But I take turmeric and quercetin, which are really good, potent anti-inflammatories. I tend to take zinc and vitamin D, just standard like vitamins and stuff. The only, I've been taking spermidine lately because it's a friend of mine's company that uh, is the longevity labs that makes spermidine life, which is the, one of the mitochondrial boosting supplements. I've been taking actually a couple of those. Um, and the reason uh, I've jumped in with that is there's really good evidence that says four months on these supplements will result in increases in leg strength. So that's something measurable that I can track. And anytime I get something like that with, with new new things that, that I can actually measure and track, I'm much more curious than if I can't. And so I haven't gone in for uh, – I know a lot of people take them before and recognizing and things like that. I just haven't done it yet. So you're constantly doing me search. Yeah, I do. By the way, I also I do, I do a lot of injectable peptides, though. That's the that's the biohacking funky end of stuff. Injectable peptides. How about diet? What do you what do you eat? Uh, I, I I'm I'm healthy. I just not a lot of processed food, um, a little sugar, not a whole lot of gluten, not a whole lot of dairy, um, though, you know, bits and pieces I'm not 100% vegetarian, though I, I try to be a large portion of the time. 
I find that I get, I tend to get very, very sick if I don't have a little bit of meat or fish in my diet. So, but I like with dietary stuff, there is no one diet. That's the, I mean, that's, that's, you know, diet and nutrition matter for peak performance, but there is no one diet that works for everyone. And the truth of the matter is, seems like there's no diet that will work for one person over the course of an actual lifetime, right? Um, these things seem to evolve and change a little bit. So um, I'm very suspicious of the nutrition crowd, I have to say. <laughs> So, so short of buying your book and reading your book, uh, you know, you know, give us what can listeners, what can readers do when they get up tomorrow? What's the first thing they can do? I mean, because it, it overwhelms a lot of people. Yeah, if we, so, yeah no, uh, actually, it's start. This is this is where we actually start a lot of people when we train people with the Flow Research Collective, and it's 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 a really obvious thing. So, I, let me talk a little bit more about the peak performance aging benefits of Flow. Before I'm going to give you a, th a thing to do for flow is really what we're going to do. Flow is really important for peak performance aging, not just because it underpins happiness and quality of life and, and, and all that stuff. So as we move into flow, there's a global release of nitric oxides, a gas that's signaling molecules sort of everywhere on the body and pushes, flushes stress hormones out of our system. It actually flow as we move into the state, it resets the nervous system back to zero. So one, I said that, there are nine known causes of aging. What they all share in common is stress and inflammation and flow resets our nervous system to zero. That's a huge, huge deal in and of itself. Second thing is in flow, we get a sense of mastery and a sense of control. We feel like we can control things we can't normally control. That's what peak performance feels like on the inside, right? We don't, we don't think, oh, I'm performing my best. We think, oh my God, I'm, I'm doing things with my words on a 6 a.m. on a Thursday morning that my words normally don't do at 6 a.m., right? If you're a writer or you're a basketball player and something you can't miss, right? You, you have a sense of control. So mastering and control are two of the most powerful emotions available to humans. And when we experience them, it boosts the production of T cells, which are the immune cells and natural killer cells, which are the cells that target tumors and other sick cells. So flow resets the nervous system because all these really good anti-stress anti properties and you get greater production of T-cells and natural killer cells. And because of the neurochemicals that underpin flow, you just get an overall boost to the whole immune system. So huge, huge, huge sort of like peak performance aging properties right there. So flow matters over time. And what I, we tell people is the easiest way to get more flow in your life is we all have something that is known as a primary flow activity. And this is literally defined as like, whatever that thing is that you've done most of your life that sort of drops you into flow. And for me, that's skiing. For my wife, that's hiking our dogs to the backcountry. For my best friend, it's playing guitar. For another mm -hmm. friend of mine, it's making movies. We all have our things, right? And what happens is as we age, most of us, Oh, we put down childish things, right? We put away the skateboard or the surfboard or the skis or whatever, right? We take on this adult responsibility and the childish things were the things that were the most playful and produced the most flow. And it's a huge penalty. And there's a further penalty for that, which is in our access to flow itself, which is flow is essentially a, a very particular kind of focusing skill. It's like any focusing skill, right? It's, it's things that's trainable. So if I go skiing on, on Sunday and I get into a flow state, uh, when I go to work on Monday, my chances of getting into flow and, and, and using that state to sort of amplify productivity and motivation and things you'd want at work uh, is also heightened. And as a final bonus, 
one of the things that happens in flow is our mood rises and our and creativity and innovation massively increases in the flow, depending on whose numbers you're going by. It's like 400 to 700%, depending on how you measure creativity. So it's a huge spike, but that heightened creativity, and this is work that came out of Harvard, will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. So you're getting more creativity, better quality of life, better mood, less stress, better health, better longevity. And all you're doing is doubling down on something that you already know brings you pressure. And what the research shows is to maximize this, we need about an afternoon a week devoted to a primary flow activity. You can split it, right? You could do a couple hours here and a couple hours there if you want. But that's um, like, you know, three, four hours. That's a huge amount of benefit for three, four hours a week. Amazing. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, you, you are a man of, of many talents, a guy of endless curiosity. I mean, you're kind of the, the human intersection of multiple disciplines. So, so as you take all of that in, all that you've studied, all that you've learned, and all that you've acted upon to date, what's the big takeaway? I mean, is there, is there a single moral to the story? You mentioned an elevator speech before we got started. Uh, is there an elevator speech to what you've learned? Yeah, I, well, so it's a great question. Also, I really spent my whole entire life seeking out people who have done extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary things. And what I always discover is the same thing, is none of them are extraordinary people. They've done extraordinary things, but they just started out like you and me. And it's just the careful and regular application of like steady biological rules of peak performance over and over and over again that leads there. And I And, and what I think, and... Over and over again, the lesson I learned is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. And that's the, that's, that's the one, that's the moral to me, is that, you know, we, we really are all capable of so much more than we know. You know, I could go on forever, but I want to respect your time. So, so let's leave it there. I mean, folks, he is Stephen Kotler, really kind of a guide along the path to peak performance. Uh, his book is called NAR Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. Uh, you can get it at NAR Country. That's G-N-A-R, NARCountry.com. Getmoreflow.com if you want to learn more about flow and why would you not want to after listening to all of this. And, and of course, just to learn more about Stephen and everything that he's up to and to follow this guy, Stephen. Kotler. That's K-O-T-L-E-R, StephenKotler.com. Stephen, thanks so much for your time. I, you know, I, I really appreciate it. You, you came to play and, and we're grateful for that. It's fun hanging out with you. Fascinating conversation with Stephen Kotler, giving us a pretty clear idea on what's on his mind. But what about Mark Middleton? Well, he's got something for us to think about as well, and we'll find out what that is next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Well, today on Growing Boulder, we've talked so far about peak human performance, longevity, supplements, all kinds of way to lean into life, but that's not all, because now it's time to find out what's on Mark's mind. 
What's on my mind is a question, Bill. I, I gave a speech recently, and I started with this question, who wants to live to be 100? And a lot of arms shot Probably up. everybody. The arms shot up. And then my response to that was, under any circumstance, under any condition, and most of the arms went down. And I think that's really a question that we all need to consider and an answer we've got to come up with because biotech is now conspiring with medicine and, and research and science to keep us alive. In fact, some people say that for every day we manage to stay alive, we add five hours to our life expectancy. So most of us are going to be old whatever that means, for a whole lot longer than our ancestors. And, and that's the question. Being old is going to be different for many, many of us. Research shows that a child born today, 50% of every baby born today is going to live to be 100. If you're a 65-year-old woman, you have a 25% chance of living to 100. And men are just right behind that. So we're going to live longer. Are we going to live better is the question. And, and we're the ones that can control the answer by how we live our life, by what we believe. Do we lean in like Stephen Kotler tells us to? It's like runners always try to save something to the end of the race so they can sprint to the wire. And a lot of us in life, you know, the thing you hope doesn't happen is that we just get dragged to the very end. Yeah, you know, we have to overcome the the belief that our culture wants us to, to have that uh, it's going to be a period of decline and disease and disability because it doesn't have to be. Uh, we got to believe that more is possible and then we have to take action like Stephen Kotler says. Uh, we got to get into the flow. We got to go. Great thought. Folks, what's your future? We hope you put a little hope inspiration and possibility into it because that's Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder LLC, all rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow, Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming rope, using ideas as my map. Said I proud me, beat it proud. Ah, but I was so much older.